Hey listeners, you're tuning in to a podcast about kids in the hall that easily veers off into mature subject matter and includes a whole heck of a lot of swearing. Enjoy the show, eh? So we're taking a short break from our review schedule to bring you a two-part interview with Paul Myers, author of the new Kids in the Hall biography, One Dumb Guy. Go buy it, read along, and revel in how long we managed to keep this poor guy on the phone. So today we have the chance to speak to Paul Myers about his new book, Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. Uh, so first of all, thanks for joining us on the official Kith and Tell recording studio, also known as a group Skype call, <laughs> to be on our rinky-dinky little show. You're a bona fide public figure with an established body of work across a number of fields, from music journalism to radio to most recently writing, and all this in addition to having a personal relationship with the kids. What? Oh my goodness. Uh, we're pretty sure this makes you our emperor. Uh, I hope you <laughs> wield your power with grace. And use it to punish Hans for liking uh, 30 Helens of Greek. <laughs> or elevate Funny. to your accolade. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I choose to elevate. Uh, yes. Because, yes. you know, it's, you know, 30 Helens agree on that. You know, like, it's definitely, I mean, that's the best, best I could do in the split second I had to think of something. But uh, it's an honor. And I, I, by the way, I just want you to know that I love uh, fan podcasts and things that are, I love the idea that people... Um, you know how everyone's so snarky and cool in society and they try, especially on Twitter, they try really hard to be like really glib. And, and to me, the thing that makes the world go round is when people uh, are A, enthusiastic and B, that they find each other in their tribes uh, and their tribes are based on positivity, not on being Nazis. Uh, and so, so like, I want to make that clear. It's one thing to find your group, but as long as it's not the Ku Klux Klan uh, or the Nazis or any other uh, and so in this day and age, honest to God, I'm so serious here. The idea of people uniting because of a love of something that was cultural and creative, creative and uplifting, uh, and just be unafraid to be a fan, you know, just be a fan. That's how I am. So, you know, that's my PSA for fandom. <laughs> love it. Now on the, on the topic of fandom, like, uh, we've noticed that this is the first book you've written. That's not about rock music. Yeah. Uh, so of all the topics in the world, what drew you to break that streak and write about Kith of all things beyond their obvious genius? I'm incredibly glad you asked that because I'll tell you, uh, for, first, uh, what I've discovered on the book tour or the mini book tour recently was that, uh, it, they are kind of a rock group. Uh, you know, the, the, yeah. the appeal of the kids in the hall is not unlike the appeal of, uh, the replacements or, uh, or, you know, some band that like in, you know, maybe, uh, uh, Canada's, uh, Canada's tragically hip of comedy or that sort of thing. In fact, they very nearly had a similar outcome to their band, but, uh, more on that later. Um, hmm. but the, the, they were always a rock and roll band. They were born of the same club scene mm -hmm. as me, uh, when I was in Toronto in a band called the Gravelberries in the, uh, late eighties, early nineties. Uh, grandpa over here, mm -hmm. and um, <laughs> they used to play the Rivoli Club, which was you know a venue that I played as a band. Like, and and the next door was the Horseshoe and all these other clubs that we played, and something called Ultrasound Show Bar and and mm. Sneaky D's and all this this club scene. And so when the Kids in the Hall started staging their comedy uh, um, on their night, uh, it was it was a crossover. And between songs, they would play uh, they would have mixtapes of uh you know things like you know uh 
the raspberries go all the way or bad finger or uh like power pop songs and and, and or heavy metal or uh, mostly punk rock not heavy metal but like big loud guitar stuff and then uh obviously later on they started bringing on their when they did theater shows they had the uh, shadowy men from a shadowy men on a, on a shadowy mm-hmm. planet and that became the signature of their group was the sound of twang guitar and rock and roll drumming and they took that to the TV show. So that kind of cool. defined what a comedy sounded like. A comedy sounded like rock and roll by the time they were done with it. So you can uh-huh. see it's not that much of a leap to, to, for a guy who's done rock biographies to do a comedy biography. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were definitely drawing a lot of parallels between them and kind of the punk rock ethic, if not sound, too. Um, and uh, one thing that I w- want, wanted to know about um, uh, was if you kind of saw them as being a punk rock band back in the day as well, or if that's something that you kind of more just as you were writing this book sort of started to draw those parallels. Well, you know, that's a good question also. Uh, I think it's hard to be aware of what you were judging history uh, as while you're living it, but there was definitely a feeling that they were, we were as into them as we were into a, like I used to be a big fan. I still am. But at the time I used to go see the pursuit of happiness, a band from who are just recently reuniting, doing tours right now, but they were their, their big heyday was in the late eighties and nineties also. And I would go to see the pursuit of happiness shows, love every song, totally got to know the band totally, you know, whenever they were playing, I'd make sure I'd mark that off. And, and all the people you'd see at the club were always the, you know, the fans and they were building a following and whether they became big or not. And they sort of had a, a much more of a national profile at one point, but we didn't care because it was our scene. And I think that's the same feeling we had at kids in the hall shows in the book. I detail one night when there was a blizzard, like yeah. I don't talk about myself much. I don't talk about myself much in the book, but th- I wanted to, at the beginning to set the scene as, like, to, to answer these questions as to why the hell I wrote this book. <laughs> and I remember this blizzard night, which is mentioned in the book, as they say, uh, and I remember you know, trudging through six-foot snowdrifts to go see them, thinking that I would probably be the only person there or the show would be canceled. This is pre-internet. <laughs> uh, pre-internet and pre-cell phones, I might add. Uh, well, there were cell phones, but not everyone had them, especially not us. Mm. And uh, so I was walking through, you know, the, you know, those little grooves where the streetcar had left an opening in the snow <laughs> and uh, and looking both ways, of course. <laughs> and then I get there, I get there and there's literally steam coming out of the door because the inside the, the crowd is packed and, wow. and, and we were, and they put on the show and they, you know, they made us forget for two hours that the city was kind of shut down, you know, and, mm. and sure we had to get home afterwards, but we wouldn't have missed the kids in the mm-hmm. hall, you know? So that's, that real that was real. So that's that's the Beatles Hamburg, you know, yeah. they talk about the Beatles back <laughs> that, in Hamburg. Yeah, that really is a like, concert or, kind or of at least the cavern. Mind, it's yeah. like maybe more like the cavern years. I think Hamburg for the kids in the hall was going to New York, but I get ahead of myself. <laughs> anyway. I love that you have the analogy worked out already. Uh, so we all love the kind of background information about all their early collaborations and so forth too. Um, to go back to what you were saying um, earlier, like so this book has a picture of you with uh, Mark in 1995. Uh, during the filming of Brain Candy, along with a bunch of other great um, images. And uh, one thing I wanted to hear a little bit more was like, when was it you were actually first introduced to the kids? Uh, and how well do you know them personally at this point? And like, when was it you kind of became friends with them? Um, so my brother is Mike Myers. Let's get that out of the way. And <laughs> Mike Myers, Mike Myers. <laughs> we weren't going to say anything. No, but that's good. And I appreciate that. I appreciate people who've been very kind because it isn't a book about Mike Myers. And I'm not really writing about Mike Myers, but Mike Myers is a character in the book. And it's definitely 
definitely a pivotal part of the book is why I'm where I mm -hmm. was and how I got there was my brother had taken Second City workshops and he was studying to be a comedian. I'm not sure what happened with that. And then uh, he got he got a job. He got hired by the Second City Touring Company, and uh, he was just about to leave there. And he had just he was still like I think he just finished a cycle of workshops they do in like six weeks or something. At the time they used to do six week cycles or something. Might have been six months. I don't know. And I can't remember. But I I remember that I was going to my class because when you're brothers, like I have an older brother Peter as well. When you're brothers you all kind of talk about something. It's like, if so, if one mm. guy joins soccer, you know, I want to play. So yes. I was a musician and I had like stage issues. I didn't know how to be on stage. And Mike said, comedy is good for that too. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I think I used to be funny. And I didn't, I knew I wasn't, I didn't know if I'd be a professional comedian, but I knew I liked to be funny. But mm. improv comedy is a specific thing. And I took a couple of cycles of Second City workshops and realized that I, at the time anyway, didn't have the acting ability and the ability to sort of make up scenes uh, on the spot. You know, I was a funny enough guy, but I, mm -hmm. I don't think I was cut out for improv. So I didn't have the same talent that my brother Mike had, so I dropped out eventually. But while I was there, in the lobby of Second City Workshops, a young Kevin McDonald and a young Dave Foley were coming out of their class. Wow. And Dave Foley walks over to me, knowing that I kind of looked like my brother, and he says, <laughs> He, and I'll never forget, I'm probably going to do the worst Dave Foley impression, but he goes, they say I'm like a young Mike Myers, like Dave Foley. You can imagine Dave, you know. They, and uh, and I, I was caught off guard by that because you got to remember, Mike was not famous. He was only known to the other class. Like, like he, was, he was definitely a hot shot in the Second City world at that point, but he was but, a young up-and-coming hot shot. So for Dave Foley to single it out, like also he's the same age as, as Mike. So it's like to say I'm a young Mike Myers was hilarious. <laughs> And I said, oh, you know my brother. You know my brother. And Dave said, yeah. And then Kevin, in Kevin's style, says, we think he's the funniest guy we've ever seen. You know? and, 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 you know, and thankfully in the book, Kevin remembers that. I mean, Kevin tells me that without me prompting him. He says that he called him the fastest gun in the, West, in the East because Kevin came from the western suburb. Kevin came from the western suburb and Mike came from the eastern suburb of Toronto. And, uh, and so he just looked at him like the way, you know, gunslingers have respect, you know, like uh, – uh, just like you know, game no game, I think is the phrase they use. Uh, and and he and they were kind of um, they were kind of in awe of Mike. Of course, made me feel proud as a brother. And then I I said I would come see them uh, whenever they're playing. And they they I don't think I think they were called the Kids in the Hall. They were doing theater sports mainly, and they were mm -hmm. just starting to do the Rivoli thing. I lost touch for a little bit there, and then the next time I saw them was because I saw a poster for their Kids in the Hall. And what I didn't know, the, the woman I was dating at the time mm -hmm. uh, uh, was a, a woman who had gone to York University, and in her class was uh, Scott Thompson. She had studied, oh. she was in the film department, but she'd worked with Bellini, and so, so she said, I want to go see this thing at the Rivoli, and I said, I want to go see something at the Rivoli, too. My friends are playing at the Rivoli, and then we realized they're in the same troupe. Oh, so, wow. so, so this was, so it was a little, bit, a little bit later because Scott joined a little later, so I, it was, I caught up with them just as Scott had joined. So, so it was pretty exciting, and, and so, so you can see there's, and meanwhile, of course, Mike is still in touch with Dave mm -hmm. uh, throughout all this, and so we're all keeping track of each other, and then I just became known to the kids in the hall as someone who was always around. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then over the years, you know, they get, you know, they get the, the news that uh, Mark and Bruce had been hired away to write for Saturday Night Live and everyone was devastated. We were like, mm. 
but that they've got the kids. They're they're just <laughs> going to be writers. What? And and so then Dave and you know Dave and and uh, uh, Kevin and Scott joined the Second City Touring Company, but hate it. They hate. They're not allowed to do what they've been doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so eventually Mark and uh, Bruce hated where they were, and they came out. They all reunited, and that's how they got their second shot with Lauren. And I remember that scene where they were like Lauren's people were in town and it was a zoo because all the comedians were trying to cut in on it, all the sketch yeah, comedians. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, you know, and then they get the TV series and I end up going to those tapings. So I end up sort of being around and walking around backstage and knowing the shadowy men. And, and so oh. the whole time I'm like watching this just as my friends, but and I'm, I'm giving you a very long answer here, but this is actually, <laughs> it's important. These pieces are all kind of important. If you see the red string on my conspiracy wall over here. Um, we love our so, red string at this yes. podcast. So Exactly. <laughs> so this is all happening while I'm doing my music stuff. And, you know, but in, the, in the meantime, over the many years, I sort of became a biographer because a band that I worked with in the old days was the Bare Naked Ladies. Oh. And the Bare Naked oh, Ladies, yeah. when yeah, I became a writer, the Bare Naked Ladies, when I became a writer, asked me to write their biography and it became the first book I ever wrote. So oh. then three books later, I finally said to the kids in the hall in like 2015, you know, it's about time I wrote a book about you guys. <laughs> and they were like, they were just getting along again after years of, you know, they figured out how to be, how to be brothers basically. Mm-hmm. And, and so they all kind of, I wrote them a nice letter you know, where I basically told them I would respect their legacy. I wanted to be honest, but I, uh, you know, if I want them to tell the way it happened and, uh, you know, I knew that they would not all agree on how it happened because memories, you know, everyone's got their own version of history in their head. So I, I basically took the task of trying to decide what was the truth and, you know, and leave the gray areas where they were gray, but try to get as much of the consistent consensus truth. Anyway, so that's how we ended up where we are because, um, over the years, I sort of trained myself to be a biographer, and I love writing biographies. I love interviewing tons of people. I love mm-hmm. getting names. Like I got Lorne Michaels, I got Fred Armisen, all the people who were inspired oh, by mm-hmm. them. And 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 to me, it's like it's like a game. It's like I have a, I I do have a big board, <laughs> by the way. And the and the big board it usually has whenever I start a book, it's like who should I be talking to for this? Who are mm-hmm. the big names? Who are the little names? Like or the lesser known names. There's no little names, uh, but like you know, like I got uh, the costume. Um, Geraldine Wraith, who did the costumes for the kids in the hall, I got an interview with her talking about, you know, creating the chicken lady costume and creating uh, Mark's makeup <laughs> for Death Comes to Town, and and you know, it's fortuitous because she passed away uh, oh, wow. just as the book was being published. Uh, so so it's really great that I got some of these people when I did, you know. Uh, Paul, I'm going to jump in here with some questions. This Please. Stuart. Um, we talked about Kids in the Hall having a real rock and roll flavor to that, but I think more than just rock and roll, they have like a distinctly punk aesthetic. Like they seem extremely counterculture from their like implementation of swearing on Canadian television so early on in that history and their depiction, like the depiction of undermining the traditional atomic happy family and from all the cross dressing. So if you had to describe the flavor of Kids in the Hall, what really stands out to you as an expert? Well, you kind of just nailed it in the question, but <laughs> I would say I would say that, you know, I can sign off on that. Uh, uh, but I would also, like, just in my own words, I would say, um, you know, there's a great line, I think it's Marlon Brando in the movie The Wild Ones, and they said, what are you rebelling against? And, and Marlon Brando, I'm paraphrasing, says, what do you got? <laughs> and, 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 and there's a certain, like, especially in Bruce, like, mm-hmm. I think Bruce is the expression 
I mean, they were all sympathizers to punk rock, and they all have their own reasons to be. But Bruce is the one who I think mostly identified with, you know, coming from Calgary, and for him, being a punk a punk rock guy was tougher than maybe some of the other suburban guys were. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, for Mark, it was a chance to live out, uh, uh, to be off the rails, uh, because he grew up in a very sort of diplomatic household, and. Mm-hmm. You know, and he'd, he'd, he'd always sort of put an emphasis on sort of being an achiever. Like at one point he even said he was, his aspiration was to be a member of parliament, possibly prime minister. Um, and, and then at the same time, so he finally, with the kids in the hall, discovers that he can be a wild man, you know, if he wants. And he's also an actor, so he could play the part of a character who's a wild guy, like the chicken lady or something. Mm-hmm. And I think Dave and Kevin, they were much more ideological punks. Mm. I think their their thing was their thing was you know we want we want we rep, we want a, a cultural change and we want this to be relevant and urgent and <laughs> I think uh, and I think Scott had a personal politics issue because he's coming out as he joins the kids in the hall he hadn't been out as a homosexual man so that's what the phrase would have been in those days um, <laughs> class, class A homosexual <laughs> but he had not uh, he had not 36. culturally identified himself he had not aligned himself with LGBT. Q at the time, uh, and and then finally after his drama school, he was in drama school and he didn't come out. Like that's amazing to me because <laughs> that's, yeah. that's how it was in the eighties, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and so for him going to Queen Street and being with a, a group of guys who didn't, uh, the first thing, the important thing I think was that they didn't want him to not be gay. Yeah. Like they they didn't care, and that that in itself is a weird political act of being an ally. Mm-hmm. And so the representation was there if he wanted it. But he could also play like what we used to call like a straight characters, non-gay characters, and they would let that happen too. They didn't want him to be the ghetto gay, you know what I mean? They didn't want him to be like the token. They didn't want him to just play, you know. I mean, the thing they weren't is racially diverse, but that that's just kind of who they were. They fell in with each other at a time when maybe (laughs) they didn't have any people of color in their immediate group when they when they locked in. And they didn't go looking for a person of color. I, but for them, I think at the time, it was enough that they were within this white male thing. They at least had somebody who was uh, of a different, um, of LGBT, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that 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 became their po- politics to some degree mm-hmm. just by virtue of inclusion, you know. And, and they, I've said they, too much. They really lean on that, too, because they have that skit later where Scott's not gay. And the whole <laughs> yeah, so that was him saying, that was him reacting to... Um, the ownership by uh, uh, like there's a magazine called The Advocate, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they they were having a hard time with how he handled his own being like out, mm-hmm. and they 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 had rules for him or something, you know. And he was <laughs> that's one thing Scott does not like. Scott does not like to be told what he is mm-hmm. and and what he can't do. So his political act was to to and also I think it was a way of telling the uh, of telling people who were starting to judge the kids in the hall as the the, the troop with the gay guy in it, yeah. you know, and and like and I I know that my brother Mike told me that there were people. Mike was a huge kids in the hall fan even when he was starting to make it, and Mike would tell some other comedy people down in the states, you know, oh man, this is my friends. These are friends. you know the kids in the hall, right? They're my friends. Oh, that's the gay troop, right? And that's all they could think of was wow. that was their, you know. And Mike said, you know, there's more to this than that. <laughs> and so I think Scott was sort of saying, oh, I see, I'm becoming the guy that, you know, you know, the, the you know, the like the token or the, the mascot. Yeah, totally. And so he, he thought, wouldn't it be funny if I took away that thing and like, I'm not gay anyway. And they're all freaking out. Like they had, <laughs> we have t-shirts and buttons printed up. You can't, <laughs> right. you can't not be gay. 
Yeah. So I thought that was, again, that shows exactly the, uh, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? I mean, yeah. and, yeah. and I think that that's, that's something that's consistent in all their work, including like, you know, including cancer boy and brain candy, um, <laughs> at a time when, when Paramount was basically begging him, not begging them not to do it. And Bruce goes to bat for it. And they won that war. They lost that. No, they won that battle, but lost the war because Paramount mm. just pulls out all the funding. And then <laughs> Death Comes to Town was a dark drama about, you know, dead people and and weird spirit energy uh, <laughs> in a bleak northern Toronto, northern Ontario town. Um, and it, it I, again, you know, it, it works because it's the kids in the hall. And it didn't work for the CBC because they end up putting it on against the Olympics and preempting it. Uh, <laughs> they, they blew it completely in how they put it on TV. But let's talk about, you're talking about rebellion and that spirit of rebellion being kind of critical to how you see the troop and how the troop sees themselves. Let's talk about what it was like drawing the curtain back on those periods and that kind of energy now. Like, what was it like having to bring that up with the kids now as you're doing the research for the book? Like, did they, did some of them, were they kind of resistant to going back to being younger and more rebellious and angry? Or was it like, you know, like, did, did, did you find the retrospect change the color of the experiences for them when you were putting this book together? Wow, that's, that's really cool. I, I, uh, I have to think about that. <laughs> so I, I would say that they're, they're all pretty open because A, they trust me and mm -hmm. B, they're just, they have, they're not in the business of denying who they are. Mm -hmm. Like that each each kid and the kids as a troop have been very upfront about their successes and failures. Mm. As Bruce, Bruce McCullough says to me, um, success tells you who you think you are, but failure tells you who you really are. Mm. And, and I thought that was really liberating. It also shows that that's, that's some of the, uh, so the esprit d'escalier, you know, the, the, the fearlessness yeah. of them taking on stuff is actually because there is no fear. Like, yeah. like they don't really, Failure isn't something to be afraid of, uh, and therefore they've gleefully failed on several occasions, including the title of the book, which comes from Kevin and is often quoted by Bruce, that they're five smart guys, but together they're making business decisions like one dumb guy. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, and Kevin right there is very open about, you know, he'll tell you he's passive aggressive, mm. you know, and he'll tell you in a passive aggressive way, which is actually a delightfully... <laughs> Uh, eating its own <laughs> tail, but I think they're pretty open about their past. And I think that uh, the only thing I would say is that Dave Foley uh, is the most vocal about this one, which is if you ever accuse them of being edgy, he'll say, no, we were not trying to be edgy. And the minute you try to be edgy, you're not. Mm. Right. Uh, anything we've done is because that's what we wanted to do. If it was edgy to some people, that's because you know, we, we locked on it. They didn't. And then maybe they caught up or whatever. We've never tried to be cutting edge. Mm -hmm. Uh, our comedy is entirely based on what makes us laugh. I got one more and then I'll hand it off to Hans. Just a sure. quick one. So do you have any skits from either um, the Rivoli or pre-show days that never made it to air? Well, there's the rectum vagina challenge, as I recall. <laughs> Can you describe that to us? Uh, it, it, was a, it was a sketch where, um, God, I think Luciano Casimiri was in this, the troupe at this point. Uh, and uh, and they, they did this sketch where... Um, Maybe it, uh, it might have been born of comparing, uh, you know, gay sex to uh, heterosexual sex. But the idea was uh, there's TV commercials uh, where they would have a product like the Pepsi Coke challenge and like which 
in a blind taste test, which oh, wow. one do you prefer, Pepsi oh. or Coke? And they would do this with like butter and different things. And so the kids in the hall did this sketch where it was, um, they had a guy blindfolded and, and they had like a simulator of, of a vagina and a simulator of a rectum. And it was on stage. And, and the idea was he couldn't tell the difference, you know, which he put his penis in. And, you know, obviously you can see why that never made it to air. <laughs> but I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. Even that. They self-censored that sketch, not because of the subject matter, but because it was a commercial parody, and they thought that was hacky. <laughs> they thought it was hacky to do TV commercial parodies, and they, they would have, you know, they would have banned it just for that. So, so like the kids themselves didn't even pitch it to the CBC. You know what I'm saying? Oh so, God, so I thought that was hilarious. That the reason they didn't do it had nothing to do with the subject. Mm -hmm. It was, it was more to do with that. It was a, it was a parody. They don't like parodies. So. That's that is amazing. It's, it's not that it was distasteful. It was distasteful to stoop so low as to do a commercial. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like uh, comic impressions. You never really saw celebrity impressions on mm. the Kids in the Hall mm. like, until Mark until Mark McKinney joined the cast of Saturday Night Live after the Kids in the Hall, and then he was sort of, you know, they're asked to do impressions, yeah, so he would do, right. you know, Jim Carrey and different people. Mm. But yeah, so they, they had no impressions and they, they didn't do topical, really. Like yeah. their topics were broader. They were more like suburban life rather than specific suburban life of a certain time. And that yeah. helps a lot in terms of not dating them, too. Yeah. That's an amazing answer. And it, it kind of leads perfectly into the question I was about to ask, which is that you, you kind of mentioned before that uh, all of the, the what we would call, you know, quote unquote, kind of edgy sketches or controversial sketches, and they certainly had plenty of them, right? You know, you've got running faggot and uh, all of the buddy sketches, the Dr. Seuss Bible, you know, all the swearing and nudity on TV. Uh, how did it feel back in those days to see that kind of content on TV? And and uh, and how did it compare to other things, other products that were that were being put on the on the airwaves those days? Dana Gould, I think the comedian Dana Gould said that, um, you know, he was a contemporary. He was working on the Ben Stiller show, I think, around the same time as the kids are still on the air. And one of the things that he observed was that, you know, you would see Saturday Night Live and they would do, you know, topical and they would do stuff that was about, you know, what was going on. So they were culturally relevant only because they were dealing with the headlines. Mm -hmm. But the kids in the hall, uh, you got the sense that mm -hmm. they were, that they were, um, they were the kids in the hall, not in the big room. You know, they mm -hmm. were the kids in the other area. They were like, so there was a sense mm -hmm. that much like I was saying that tribes of fans find each other, comedians would look to them to be doing the stuff that's, I, I think I'm trying to avoid the word pure, but you know, <laughs> like when you're, when you're a writer and I've known a lot of comedy writers over the years, for one, they're all very serious <laughs> when they're off work. They, they do, they're not, they don't laugh, they smile or they might applaud, <laughs> but they don't laugh so much. They, and you know, unless it's, and then by the way, if you can make a comedy writer mm -hmm. laugh, you've done something amazing. Yeah. And so you should feel tough very crowd, proud of yourself. Crowd. Yeah. Uh, but they, they generally, they generally are like, they're just looking at the science of it and they're, they're getting into it, but they, they get excited about the science of it. So, so the kids drew that kind of respect. So mm -hmm. they were doing material that was sort of beyond you know, because in America, especially that's the ones I've talked to in America, that it was hard to get the kids mm -hmm. in the hall because it was on HBO. And then it was on, you know, at a time when not many people were watching HBO, by the way, this is before mm -hmm. they had anything else like the kids in the hall. <laughs> they only had stand up specials and boxing and paid for yeah. movies. So this is the first time they'd done original scripted material, I think. And uh, 
And then when they went to CBS, CBS put them on at 1230, a recommended time of 1230, but they would often affiliates in the Midwest and places would put them on at three in the morning. Yeah. So, and so really this is a, a cult born out of VHS tapes mm-hmm. and shared experiences and comedians, other comedians who would say, I really like Paul Feig, you know, uh, of bridesmaids fame. He, he was like, I had to discover these guys or Judd Apatow who watched the kids in the hall in this, uh, all these writers who were trying to make it in Hollywood were staying at this, they used to hang out at this place called the ranch and they're all from the Midwest and everything. And you know, the guy, the creator of MST 3k was there, Joel Hodgson and, uh, Steve Higgins, who later became, you know, the sidekick on Jimmy Fallon and, and also is the producer, associate producer of Saturday Night Live now. And like all these guys were in this one house and they were all watching the kids wow. in the hall and trading notes about it and saying, Oh my God, we got to do something like this. So, so their influence was like, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I may have gone off on a tangent. Nope, you absolutely are. Yeah. It, it's funny that you mentioned them kind of being loved by other comedians, uh, maybe, maybe more uh, just because they weren't as exposed to the public in general. But Dave Foley has said that there was a time where they were hoping they would make uh, Mike Myers, one of the kids in the hall. And, and since you happen to know Mike Myers, who's an obscure deadbeat hack of a comedian, no one's really ever heard of on this podcast. Um, <laughs> How how true is that fact? So, did, what? How close did that ever come to actually being a thing? Um, I, I, you know, it's funny because in in likeliness, uh, I don't think that you could have had a Mike Myers. And I can say this objectively, by the way, a Mike Myers who's kind of a like, I'm in awe of him as an ideas machine. Like he he's a, a hard worker, a generator of original ideas. Pretty much the reason he doesn't do a lot of films is because most of his actual films are films that he takes three or four years or sometimes longer to sort of mm. put together. And whether they work or not with anyone else, he's always put a lot of time and energy into these things. Mm-hmm. And he's got six or seven things going at any given time that you don't know about. Uh, I think him and Bruce could have been an interesting. Uh, they would have been like Lennon and McCartney mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like Bruce being the, the work driver, as he calls himself, the work pig of the kids in the hall. <laughs> and I think that Bruce and him would have had that, as I was saying earlier, game, no game. Like, I think they would have respected mm-hmm. each other's work ethic. Uh, here's how it actually did play out is that Mike was doing improvs. So Mike was really, really good friends with Dave at this point and really respected him and, and was jealous in a good way mm. that the kids in the hall had found each other and that they were mm. a troop. So Mike's out there trying to like hustle for his own thing in the second city organization, which is already kind of a museum of comedy. And mm-hmm. you know, there are certainly great people coming up through the ranks, but you really had to fight for your individuality to bring your own voice to the second city thing. Whereas the kids were mm-hmm. creating their own voice together, you know? Yeah. And so he felt like, a that's great. So he would go over there to where they were across town. So yeah. Mike would do a second city show and be finished at like what, 11 or something or 10 or something. And he'd whip over and see the kids in the hall. And then they sometimes would ask him to do uh, improv set later in the show. Oh, cool. And, and so, and he'd be on mm-hmm. stage doing bits with Bruce or bits with Mark. And, you know, it was really fun to watch these pros jam, you know, like they were, and they were, they were all just becoming pros, by the way. It wasn't even like, so it was like watching, you know, a young Keith Richards jamming with a young Jimmy Page. I mean, I, and I say this again with full humility, because I'm not talking about me. Like I'm talking yeah. about people I objectively watched be really great. Like Mike was really great. So there's no... No jealousy from the brother here. Like I totally, and that's one of the reasons I'm not in comedy is I go, this guy's really great. Let's just like stand back from this. 
Yeah. I'll do other things. I'll, I'll, I'm okay. I'll do something else. <laughs> like, You'll be a legit so rock star. What? What's that? <laughs> You'll be a legit rock star. Well, yeah. I mean, who knows what I am, but I'm having fun. But so, so the thing is that I would watch them jam. And then because Mike goes away, Mike decides he's going to move to England because he wanted to. He Pop wanted out of comedy, of course. Uh, yeah, he opted out of comedy. He wanted to become, uh, 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 he wanted to work uh, at, at a Battersea power station. He just wanted a normal job. No, he, <laughs> he, his thing was comedy, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the British thing. We, uh, we loved Monty Python and, mm. and all the people around that scene and, the, you know, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And, and so Mike had heard that, you know, there's a good improv scene in London. Hmm. And so he went there and he left. Like, so he went to sort of strike it out on his own. And that's a whole other story. Although I will say that while he was there, he, he taught some of the Second City improv games to a few people who later became uh, Whose Line Is This Anyway? So a lot okay. of those guys, that scene, the comedy store at Players in London was something mm-hmm. that Mike helped start, but he was gone. He was gone from London by the time they started doing that. So, so uh, but uh, anyway, I digress. So Mike's <laughs> away, and that's when Scott comes to hang out with the kids in the hall more often. And they're trying to decide who they were. They, they had a couple other names of people like Tim Sims that they were interested in. Tim Sims is a very influential local comedian who's passed away, um, since passed away. Mm-hmm. And Tim was considered and Scott was considered. There was resistance to Scott at the beginning because he was a real actor, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and Dave, Dave and Kevin weren't sure that an actor should be in the troupe. But Mark went to see him do improv on his own with the Love Cats, his own troupe. Scott was briefly on a troop with Tim Sims called the Love Cats, and they thought Scott was great. So they, they brought Scott out to jam with them more, and then Scott eventually got the gig. I think they realized Scott was manic, wild energy that, they, that would help them all, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. they were all kind of pretty straightish, you know, not just sexuality, but they were, like, they were all relatively straight characters, and, and Scott was a bit of a wild card, and Scott really wanted to be a wild card, so he brought a little bit of anarchy to their thing, and they just felt like it was complete with him. Yeah. And so yeah. that's why he – that's and so I, I will say one more thing about the relationship with Mike and him, Mike and them. And so so Mike, Mike's toiling away and auditioned for Saturday Night Live and isn't sure if he got the gig yet. I think he was almost going to get the gig, and it was driving him crazy. But in the meantime, that's when the kids had gotten their pilot. The kids had gotten their pilot with Lorne Michaels, so with the same boss as Saturday Night Live. And so Mike's not only jealous now, in a good way, he's like, he said he watched their pilot. Dave showed him the pilot, and he, he said, I was physically sick because they were getting away with it. They were getting yeah. away with it, I, and I was going nowhere. I probably wasn't oh. going to get Saturday Night Live, he said. And then, and then the one last thing I would say is, so there's this great scene in the book where they're at the Brill Building, which is the offices of Broadway Video, Lauren Michaels' company. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a classic building for songwriters, too, by the way. It's, you know, mm-hmm. Paul Simon has an office there. It's like, so Mike's going to do the paperwork when he finally does get in Saturday Night Live, and he's going to do the final paperwork and meet Lauren in his office. And who should be leaving oh. the elevator but the kids in the hall? Because they had a writing office in the Brill Building. So uh, Kevin tells me that story, and it's like, even if I didn't know these people, to me, that's like, again, like Jimmy Page just <laughs> met the Beatles in the elevator. Like, it was yeah, like, yeah. like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand how life's like that, but it is. You know? And again, they were completely independent. It wasn't like the kids said, we should give Mike a break, or Mike said, you should give the kids a break. They were all working on their own track, and, and yet they're all kind of peers, you know? And, and that's what 
as a storyteller, when I write books, I love stuff like that. Oh, it's totally. like, it's like, so I, again, even if you weren't a fan of the kids in the hall, I actually, I'm not trying to sell more books, but I am, I guess, but well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't just do this. I wouldn't just do this to tell, sell more books. But I think if you didn't know much about the kids in the hall, mm. it's just such a neat story. Oh, you know, totally. it's just, I, the stories to me are so great. Mm. Like I, that's what I do. I tell stories, you know? It totally. I I would I would kill to see some old VHS recordings or Betamax recordings of uh, Mike uh, getting up on stage doing improv with the kids oh. way back in the day. Like you say, Keith Richards jamming with Jimmy Page. That would just be amazing to. I think Paul Bellini has the tapes. Oh really? I think so. He probably doesn't have them archived or anything in it or indexed. Oh. That would be a great thing. Oh, well, to be honest, I I think my next move might be to do a documentary. And Ooh. in which case, I would love to get those tapes uh, put into the film. Uh, that's oh, just yeah. something I'm talking about. We're talk Somebody asked me to do a documentary, and we're just talking about how that would go. Um, Bellini, being a film student at York University, oh. he he knew how to operate a video camera and and you know the big bulky kind, and he yeah. brought them down to the Rivoli. So they they totally uh, recorded the pretty much every time they played for about a wow. year and a half. Wow. Wasn't that his original nexus with the group? Is that Scott made him schlep all the equipment down because it was heavy? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, then there was a couple other guys in that group, uh, and actually a lot of them are in the in uh, uh, the film the filmmaker group that hung out with Bellini and and uh, and, and and Scott. They um, they have they also have an electronic uh, sort of punk rock uh, disco whatever band called Mouth Congress, and yeah. Mouth Congress made these legendary rambling you know, songs, and some of them got compiled, and apparently Scott just told me that they have a record deal, finally. Oh, <laughs> these old recordings, these old recordings are finally coming out on some kind of record. Oh, that's Amazing. so cool. Um, Paul, I'm going to ask you a, a couple of very short but very mean questions here now, um, because we have uh, some recurring segments, and they include the best and worst sketch and kid for every episode. Uh, so we've decided we want to put you in a corner and force you to do the same and choose your Rosemary's baby. So if you if you had to pick a favorite kid based on their presence in the skits and the scene, uh, less more so than their writing, who would who would be your favorite kid as a performer? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> that really is a tough one. Um, I mean, it's it's like it's really a, it really is a. Sophie's choice, man. Like I, I think that the, I mean, I could tell you like things about each one of them that makes me like think at any given time, they're the best. Like, like Mark really inhabits the characters that he's, like, he can play, you know, like a straight up devil as well as play like a, you know, a cop, you know, and, and Bruce though is seething intensity in like so many things. <laughs> yeah. Like Bruce, Bruce can do so much with just a, a head nod. You know, and, and, you know, Mark, I think is the best, I don't know, it's, they all say that Scott's the best actor. I think Scott is, Scott is definitely very committed to bits. Like he yeah. did a, a Buddy Cole, when we did the Toronto book launch, he, he came out at the beginning of the show as Buddy Cole. And, uh, and I had not asked him to, by the way, which is great. Like I had, no, no. What I love is that he, he shows up and says, I'm going to do Buddy Cole. And I said, Oh yeah, great! Because I, <laughs> I, I never dreamed to say, "Hey, can you come do this book event and uh, do a bit?" Yeah, and he comes yeah. out and he writes new. He had all new material. Oh man! And, it, oh, and wow. he committed, and he committed, and he was Buddy. In fact, I actually remember saying when I saw him come out as Buddy, I was talking to Buddy. I knew I wasn't talking to yeah. Scott anymore. 
And so that's impressive. But then mm-hmm. at the same time, Dave Foley has such a great everyman character that I've always thought he was like, uh, there's an old, older comedian named David Steinberg from Canada. Mm-hmm. And David Steinberg had this kind of dour sort of Dick Cavett sort of, look that reference up too. Uh, but there used to be a time when there were smart sort of uh, smart guys who would just be on TV and they would talk very calmly about things, you know, and they, <laughs> Dave Foley has that energy. But then there's days when Kevin with his sort of like, um, yeah, yeah. That way he goes into that sort of high voice thing. Oh, like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. Out of my head. You know, I mean, like, Kevin's and, voice. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's yeah, exactly. And, but they, they, it's the way he uses that voice and like hmm. the choice yeah. of saying, cat on my head, cat on my head. Like, it's just like, to me, that's, you're evil, you know, like, and, and then uh, who am I leaving out? Um, so I, yeah, pretty much all of them, you know? So, much, yes. so, so, so I would say that, I would say that, I would say that Mark is the most deceptively brilliant actor in the mm. troupe and that, and he mm. actually doesn't get mentioned as much as I think he should, like in terms of like impact, but you, you know, you gotta remember, he's the guy that saved the show. Like mm-hmm. when he did um, the Head Crusher, it became a cult character on HBO. He ends up getting the yeah. Cable Ace Award that keeps them on HBO for two more seasons, right? Because they were about to, they were literally canceled by HBO until they beat Gary Shandling. The Gary, Shandling, <laughs> wow. the Gary Shandling show was on yeah. HBO, and they um, they they won the Cable Ace Award, and then HBO said, oh, "Okay, we'll give you another shot." Amazing. Oh, I hadn't I hadn't realized that he had had that uh, kind of singular impact in that way. Yeah, and of course, Chicken Ladies. Chicken Ladies, the other character that Mark does that uh, is widely identified with the group. Um, speaking speaking of that, uh, you know, more uh, more Sophie's Choice, not Rosemary's Baby, by the way. That's a that was a, a very. I was actually trying to think which one of them has the baby seed, uh, the <laughs> devil. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, I mean, there, there's there's probably Scott. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there is there is a case to be made that choosing a best kid is also choosing a Rosemary's Baby, but. Uh, um, but anyways, uh, what what would you say is your favorite sketch of all time? That you, if you had to pick one. Oh man, yeah, that's all. I, I've been asked that on this promotional thing lately. It's funny because I, I the the ones I, I quote the most are like to Reg, you know, like that one where they're they're sitting around and they're talking about. Oh, but it's not yeah. like it's not a it's not the funniest sketch. But they're all sitting around talking about their friend Reg who's died, and they're talking about what yes. a great guy he was. And then it, it transpires that they've actually murdered him. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> You know, and my, I have the greatest punchline, which was to Reg, easy to love, hard to kill, you know, and, 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 and I sort of, I also think that's the, that's the kids in the hall in a nutshell too, right? Kevin suggested that in many ways the the kids in the hall are, they're, they've murdered their own troop several times and, and, you know, they all love the troop, but they've murdered it several times. So, and the other thing I, I always liked was, um, the Courier Dubois. Yes. Where they're 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 uh, hunting and trapping uh, businessmen, like yes. uh, you know, and I, I love that, yeah. and and I also loved uh, well the recurring cops things were always fun to me, you know, <laughs> and of course the, you know the cops and the and the corollary was the uh, the sex workers that uh, you know uh, uh, Dave and uh, Scott. And Dave is the most beautiful French woman in the world, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> yeah. French Canadian. Like I've I've been around him on set. And it was like, uh, Dave, I'm feeling kind of funny here. <laughs> like, you know, because like, you know, and that's that Scott points out. He, he said that there's like these hetero identified crew members who have gay panic around around Dave. That's, that was the phrase he used, <laughs> gay panic. Um, and I, I know the feeling. I know the feeling. I've told Dave to his face that, you know, he's a beautiful woman. 
We uh, we are so excited to have a couple of people that are fans of the show, and one of them uh, had mentioned exactly the same thing that Dave was the most beautiful French woman, and uh, and uh, we're we're hoping to use that as a as a topic for a future episode, discussing which which kid had the the best uh, the best woman in drag. For my money, I think it might be Mark. Mark can be very pretty, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Join us next week for part two of our interview with Mr. Paul Myers himself. Bye.